Is there anything we can't reimagine? More than we realize, our solutions to social challenges are shaped by our concepts of good and bad and enacted along lines of power. These simplistic conversations of good and bad obscure deeper conversations. Who are we really? What are we responsible for? And can we change? Abolition as a political effort calls on us to dismantle our current prison system and the violences that surround it. It also necessarily calls on us to change our culture, our habits around punishment, and the transformation of our very beings. I was so grateful to talk with Miriam Kaba in this episode on abolition. She shares her insight and her wisdom on the culture abolition inspires us to create. Miriam Kaba is an organizer, educator, and curator. Her work focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. This is a conversation I've really been excited to share with you all for months, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so this is actually a conversation I've been so excited to have. And um, Miriam Kaba, I just want to say thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for being in conversation. This is really, I think, going to be a really important conversation for the folks listening to this podcast today. So thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to the conversation. So, you know, this podcast is called Finding Our Way. And what we are doing, the project, is bringing voices together, people together, who we feel like are a part of a constellation of people that are helping us to create a new future, new possibilities. We may not each individually have the answer, but we have some piece of it that we feel like if we weave them together, it helps us navigate to where we're headed. So we start every episode with the question um, that you can answer however speaks to you. But the question is, where are we? How would you define this moment? How would you describe this moment? Where are we? Yeah, um, what a question. I think for me, it's been a really obviously tumultuous, crisis-filled, but also incredibly wondrous time in the last year and change, um, Mm -hmm. basically since last March, when, um, and here in New York, we had a really horrible time of it in terms of the COVID pandemic, uh, Mm -hmm. starting in March through, I think, at least through June. Um, I live in East Midtown, and I live next to two hospitals. And I just remember this constant, like it was persistent and constant sirens through all aspects of the day and night. There was just no end to it at a certain point. It just became this background noise um, that we just had to endure and deal with and knowing what those sirens were kind of instantiations of. You know, I Mm -hmm. felt so much heaviness and the other side of it was that I was absolutely reaffirmed in understanding the importance and the essential nature of our interdependence as humans, all of the efforts of mutual aid, all of the life affirming relationship that people leveraged in order to make sure that we all survived to the extent that we could and we lost so many people I mean just an inordinate amount so much of an excess I think that it's hard to put my brain to wrap my brain really fully around it 
but so many of us are still here in part because of that interdependence and other things that made that possible. So I think right now I see us in kind of a midst of an ongoing global set of pandemics of disease and issues of climate, poverty, and so many other violences, but also in a moment where I think there are possibilities for living in another world, building that other world together. So always for me, it's always kind of like one foot in creative destruction and the other foot in the possibility of making new things. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. That reflection, you know, you grounded us in a year plus of multiplying multiple pandemics. And I know something that people have been asking me to reflect on is like kind of one year later after uprisings around Breonna Taylor, around George Floyd, we see this conversation of abolition being had more often. And I'm wondering if you can talk about just kind of why you think that's happening, um, what's made that happen, and where you think we're kind of going in that conversation also. Sure. Um, I think that a lot of people have been and are trying to make sense of this moment of crisis and possibility. And I think that in times like that, folks may be more willing to engage with ideas that they are new to, um, ideas that may be more challenging to them under circumstances where things aren't so up in flux. And I think that the labor and the work of generations sometimes meets a particular moment where that work can become legible to more people. And I think in part, that's kind of what has happened with PIC, Prison Industrial Complex Abolition, as a political vision, as a practice, and as an organizing strategy. I think that more people are ready to hear something different than what they've been hearing over time. And I think that has a lot to do with the receptivity of some of the ideas advanced by PIC abolitionists. I think it's up to all of us who are invested in a path that is an abolitionist path uh, to try to engage with as many people as possible in the ways that we feel like we can. Since abolition is a collective project, it's not on one or two people, it's on a whole host of folks who live and um, are in so many places in the world to kind of keep that momentum going. And when I say momentum, I don't mean it in an urgent sense. I just mean it in a mm-hmm. sense of, con- you know, con- continuing to move. I love that distinction at the end about it not being about urgency necessarily. But I, I want to kind of go in a little bit into the conversation around prisons and incarceration. Um, but I kind of want to come to it from a a standpoint of what this kind of system that we live in, what it kind of requires of all of us. Mm-hmm. I guess, what are the the concepts that it gives each of us about who we are in relationship to people who are incarcerated or who we are in relationship to goodness and badness, those kinds of things. Because mm-hmm. um, I think in, in your um, most recent book and writing, 
there's a lot of clarity about what it is that we all end up ingesting. Mm-hmm. I think when we're living inside of these systems. So I guess maybe to start, my question is, what do you feel like are some of the the concepts that we take for granted that actually emerge from a a logic that sits underneath this prison system that we currently have? Like, what are some of the things that we might not even realize that we believe that actually uphold this? Yeah, I think at the center of these death-making institutions, always at the center of it has to do with power over, has to do with fear of the other, has to do with a real desire and in some cases, a real need for punishment. I think also just the necessities of a structure that is built on domination and oppression uh, necessitates these death-making institutions both to create a sense of quote-unquote order, but also to literally reorder um, so that some people have more and others have less. And I think that all of those things, a punishment logic and a, a logic that is focused on domination and control has a real deleterious effect on human beings that I think is just not, maybe it's not as understood how the corrosiveness of that impacts us on a daily basis in so many different ways, even for those who feel like they're outside of those systems. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always interested and have always been interested in this notion of that. I think some people are holding on so tightly to what exists, not only out of fear, but also because it serves them in some way. So Mm -hmm. we have to lean in when we're having conversations with people about these death-making institutions. We really have to lean in to the fears, but we also have to be honest about what needs the current system actually is fulfilling for people. And I think that part we don't do as well. We kind of lean into Mm -hmm. being like, we understand why people want these death-making institutions because they're afraid, because they desire something we call safety, which is really just an illusion. People desire various kinds of things, but people also get pleasure out of punishment. People Mm -hmm. also get validation out of punishment. People also have a way of building community out of punishment. Like these are not things that are incidental. These are things that are very much part of why we hold on so tightly to what exists and why any attempt to try to shift that can often cause people to viscerally and sometimes violently fight back against any possibility of something different than what exists. I think we have to have those conversations and be honest. We, you know, we have to talk about the pleasure that we get out of punishment, um, Mm. but that's also a thing because if we don't talk about that, then we're always just talking about, oh, punishment feels this hard, you know, it's suffering and it has, but no, it actually also, the person who's doing the punishment often feels pleasure out of that. Um, And we have to like be honest about what that means. 
there's like three questions I have lined up for you, but I think that with this point that you're making, like you're saying, we don't really talk about this very often, but I think about when I facilitate transformative justice processes or even facilitating conflict. Yeah. And, and it's not even just facilitation. Let me be real. Yeah. It's also in my own experience of my own life yeah. and <laughs> being myself yeah. that there are times where we can, you know, the questions I have for people early on in a process are like, what would what would satisfy you as an outcome? Or mm -hmm. sometimes reminding people that no process will undo what has been done. Yeah. And I've had that feeling both in myself and witness it in other people of what we actually want is revenge or what we actually want is somehow to make it all go away. But that, that drive or that urge for, it, it's not always revenge. Some people just want to and some people have the urge to, like you're saying, find pleasure in that. But I feel that in us and we just kind of overlook it. We're like, oh, this is a, this is the way you should be. But people do have that initial urge at times to, yeah. I want to punish you for making me feel this way. But also like, I, I, why for me, this is not a, I don't think it's a judgment on people mm -hmm. for taking right. pleasure out of punishment. Like uh -huh. I actually also, when somebody hurts me, want to hurt them back. Exactly. And when something terrible happens and befalls them, I too, in some cases, feel a sense of gladness that that mm -hmm. occurred to them. Like we are not these perfectly, you know, pure, unflawed <laughs> individuals who just have like deep forgiveness in our heart. Like we're not, <laughs> we're not sane. You know, mm -hmm. and I and I guess for me, like when I came to the conclusion many years ago, like I really kind of leaned into this notion of the ways that punishment actually is pleasurable and also mm -hmm. easy, like much easier to engage in than actually helping people take accountability for their bad acts. Like mm -hmm. that, it's so much easier because they don't have to do anything. You mm -hmm. do everything. And they just are passively there, or mm -hmm. if they're not there, they're somewhere else. But like, you don't have to do much work. You can just punish people. And like, mm -hmm. that is also real. Like, it's a time consuming thing to be That's sitting right. with help, you know, forcing people to have to take account for what they've done or being in a space where you are making that possible with people. Like, it's so much easier to just go ahead and punish folks. They yeah. don't have to be involved then. Um, we don't have yeah. to wait for them. We can just take it on. Um, and so to me, I wish there were more real spaces for that real conversation to be happening amongst us so that we can acknowledge that where we're at and then mm. do the work of moving from where we're at to where we want to be. Like, you know, to shrinking the the space, I always say this, but, you know, shrinking the space between my values and my actions. That's mm -hmm. like a lifelong process that isn't linear and that I'm not going to always get right. And that is going to be four steps forward and five steps back sometimes. And so I guess maybe I should also say this because I think sometimes when I have conversations with people, I think for me, being acutely aware that human beings are flawed makes mm -hmm. me actually feel more connected to others and mm -hmm. also opens me up to being more courageous and more compassionate. Like mm -hmm. I am not 
under any illusions of that I won't be disappointed sometimes by people. But I still think people can do good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm less interested in the conversations around whether people are good or <laughs> are bad. But I do believe that everyone can do good and mm-hmm. take on good actions and live into better behavior. So mm-hmm. I think maybe that's a little bit about like kind of where I sit on the, you know, on the that on that line around trying to wrestle with these things in a real way rather than mm-hmm. pretending that I'm dealing with folks who have a perfect politic, a perfect set of values that, you know, conform to the best of our intentions for ourselves and each other, but that we're actually always in struggle with ourselves and we're always trying to figure out how to reconcile all of our contradictions all the time. So can I ask you a kind of, um, maybe it's a basic question in some ways, but given that we at times can find pleasure in punishment, can you really lay out for us, what does an abolitionist future then give us that we are not able to get to the way things are currently Mm. ordered? Well, I think just this, which is an acknowledgement that punishment can be pleasurable, that, um, Mm. you know, like talking about that in an honest way, putting that on the table and not skirting it. Um, I think it also offers us this opportunity to uh, understand that human beings are always in process, that there's no, Mm -hmm. like, that you know, I say this often, but like there is no abolition land like that we're Mm -hmm. getting to, you know? Mm -hmm. There is only an ongoing set of processes that will allow us to have better responses to what I see as inevitably, we're going to constantly harm each other because we're human beings. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. foresee a time. And again, this also is probably a product of my very limited imagination about this because obviously (laughs) human beings evolved and will continue to evolve. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not here for like, you know, for what I'm sitting in for this moment at this time, I don't imagine that we're going to be humans if that we'll be humans in the way that we're human now and not harm each other i i I just think that's going to happen and so my interest as a pac abolitionist has always been an abolition rooted in transformative justice but that's not everybody's abolition by the way like not Mm. all abolitionists subscribe to transformative justice as a framework um, Mm. or an ideology or um, a practice and so mm-hmm. we have to also be open to that. Mine is rooted in transformative justice, but other people are, is rooted in other things. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I really think that's important as a distinction for people to also understand. And so for me, because my abolitionism is rooted in transformative justice, I'm constantly interested in relationship and harm. And harm mm-hmm. defined not as crime, but harm which, you know, not everything that's harmful is criminal and not everything that's criminal is harmful. Can you break that down? Because that, that was actually one of the questions I had here. And, um, you know, when I was reading, we do this till we free us, I was like, this is this distinction, this, this distinction is some of what people need to hear. So can you just take us through that, that again, the relationship between 
well, crime and harm because no. they get so yeah. conflated. Well, there is no relationship, right? right? Like that's actually the bottom line. There simply isn't. Crime is a socially constructed set of norms that define what a society decides for itself they will criminalize like that's all that's all it is it's not anything about this is supremely harmful and therefore we make it a crime mm -hmm. what we as a society and usually not even created by us but created by people years and years and decades and decades ago and then we just keep adding more things to the criminal code so that it's 100 trillion pages instead of 100 million pages, right? <laughs> and a perfect example of this is something that I was just talking about earlier today, which is all this moral panic stuff that's happening around Walgreens and people mm -hmm. saying that people are stealing material stuff from Walgreens and that this is like the height of harm and people random people who are in Walgreens are now calling the cops on people they see shoplifting, right? Um, mm -hmm. And shoplifting, I'm anti-capitalist. I don't think shoplifting from Walgreens is a major harm at all. Like, mm -hmm. it's not, you know, and I certainly don't think it should be criminalized, right? Like, because people should have what they need to survive. So under that construct, right, for me, like, it maybe is harmful to like, the CEO of Walgreens, like, I don't know, you know, but it's not harmful <laughs> to workers. It's not harmful. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, so what are we really talking about here? But you know what happens every single year? It's billions of dollars of wage theft from workers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from companies that are literally stealing from their own employees mm -hmm. through multiple ways that are totally legal. But that's billions of dollars. People aren't stealing billions of dollars worth of goods from Walgreens. And so I think it helps us to really think about that kind of stuff, right? Something that might be super harmful to me, you might see as not a big deal to you, mm. right? And there's a lot of subjectivity to that. And so mm. we have to constantly be this is part of why, to me, transformative justice is so useful is because it sits with what we all, like what the person who's been harmed is interested in, while also putting that in conversation with the broader communities, needs, ideas, thoughts. So it's always kind of a negotiation there about like, how can we try to repair what's happened within the context of what we can actually accomplish together. And so I think to me, that's much more useful and much more fruitful of a way to be addressing what, what are various kinds of harms. I hear people who say like, if you use the word harm, then it flattens everything and makes everything everything. But that's also true of crime. I don't mm -hmm. know what people are talking about, honestly, you know? And I, mm -hmm. I just think that our need to be acknowledged when a bad thing has happened to us, our need and our desire and our mm. want to be taken seriously and not dismissed and not ignored and not neglected, that that thing is the thing to work around and to work with, right? It's like, how do we, how do we meet people's desire to be acknowledged? How do we 
prevent people from being alone when they're harmed and for ruptures to have occurred in relationship to make it so that that person doesn't end up getting their needs met or gets pushed mm-hmm. out of the community even worse when they're the one that were, was actually harmed. Like, how do we how do we engage with that hard stuff, you know? So, yeah. So that's a little bit mm. of my thoughts on that. I mean, it's right now, I'm, it might be a little all over the place, but it makes sense in my no. head. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, it, it also makes sense in my head. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about your work and your leadership is, you know, whenever I read you, I hear you speak, there's such a, it's like a piercing clarity. At the same time, you have such nuance around this practice. Like there are just so many places in here that I I, I see you looking and asking hard questions. And I guess I kind of have a question about this moment that we're in where more people are, mm-hmm. are practicing transformative justice or mm-hmm. engaging in the ideas around transformative justice or engaging in ideas around um, abolition. Yeah. And yet we're still, many of us still are embodied or mired in the kind of binaries that disrupt our kind of creativity and listening that I think transformative justice that you're pointing towards requires. I'm just wondering how, if you've experienced that or how that's been this moment of like kind of increased practice, Mm -hmm. attention, and the ways that I think maybe collectively we are, I don't know, Mm -hmm. challenged by the implementation. I'm constantly challenged by everything all the time. Like, I don't know how people live in the world of this is one way and this is the other way. And that's all there Mm. is. Like, to Mm. me, in my experience of living, I'm my 50th year, I'm turning 50 in a few months, couple months. um, And like, for me, wondrous things always have happened alongside and parallel to the terrible. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how to, how to suss all that stuff out. You know, and I want to say too, a thing about transformative justice that I think people want is for it to mirror what we currently have, but just less horrible, maybe. Come on. I think people want to hold on to the pleasure of punishment, want to hold on to all these other kinds of things, but just like make it a little less messy or a little (laughs) less you know, maybe visibly harmful. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm, but I think mm -hmm. that's where I see stuff going on. I also realized something many years ago, which was that like people will get mad at you very often. Like one of the things I have found over time has been the conversation. You know, I started doing anti-violence work by working in a rape crisis center Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college. And basically spent years then working in domestic violence organizations and other places, both as a worker and as a volunteer. And I realized pretty early on that I think people genuinely care about people who are harmed by violence, but they care about them in the box that they've created for them, Mm. not caring for them in how they are. We often throw around terms within TJ, but also within the anti-violence movement. It's more field. It's not a movement anymore. Um, that is always about um, survivor censorship, for example. Yep. But it's not clear to me which survivors do you actually mean? Like what? Oof. Like what do you mean by survivorhood? Like what does that mean? Like how do I get into <laughs> the club? 
Do I have mm. to compulsorily confess that all things bad have, that have ever happened to me? Like all those things are the mess and the murkiness of it and the difficulties of it. And so we're in this place where, especially in the age of social media, and I have a lot of, I have a lot of empathy for particularly young people growing up only having experienced this world. I've, I've had people very, very angry at me, for example, for facilitating public processes with people who raped people and will mm -hmm. be like, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't hard enough on them or this was like from, by the way, they were not part of the process at all, right? So they don't mm -hmm, know what mm -hmm. happened. They may have read something or heard from a friend right. of a friend or whatever. So they're commenting based on where they're at. It's about them. It's not about us or the process. Mm. And I always say, like, actually, those of us who are engaged in transformative justice are the people you need to be yelling at the least about, quote unquote, being rape apologists. We actually mm -hmm. talk about rape all the time. Yeah. <laughs> We're in our community yeah. and sexual assault yeah. and violence. And like, that's what we're constantly bringing it up. Right. Like we're not yeah. the ones trying to shut it away or hide it. We're always like, let's get to the acknowledgement stage. Let's pull that out. Let's work with people so that they don't continue gaslighting people. So that's mm -hmm. how I'm always so calm about it. Like friends of mine will be like, so-and-so is dragging you on so-and-so. And I'll be like, I don't really <laughs> care. There's a lot of reasons I don't care. The main one I don't care about is they don't know me. They don't right. know the process. They weren't part of it. Yeah. And if somebody I facilitated a process with who's a survivor is upset, I care about that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, I do. when I when you look at a process and the person who was the survivor feels like they got what they needed out of it, even if the person who did the abuse or did the harm chooses not to take accountability, that's not a failed process. There's just a lot of confusion, which I totally, totally understand. I yeah. really do. And I'm not like, it's not condescendingly at all. I totally get it. And I also get like, when you're not part of something that you have all sorts of imaginings of what's really happening and going on that aren't based on anything, but your yeah. own yeah. goals and your own values and your own behavior and your own desire. And so I get it. And you're kind of projecting, you know, like yeah. if, if it were me, I wouldn't do this. Well, TJ never says you should do anything you don't want to do. It's actually voluntary. So mm -hmm. like, I'm not forcing you to do anything. What, why are you so upset? Like what, what's making you mad? Like really at bottom, yeah. what is, what is really troubling you? And I'll just say the last thing is I've been hearing in the last few years, as people try things, a lot of stories of supposed failures, uh -huh. TJ doesn't work. I hear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always like, I'm really curious about that, you know, like, I'm really curious about that. Like, what do you mean? Doesn't work. What did you mm -hmm. do? How did you do it? With whom did you do it? What did you learn from the experience? I believe in failure being actually an opportunity for improvement. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, that failures can be glorious because mm -hmm. as long as it's not further harming anybody in a really negative way, it's something that you have an opportunity to learn from, and then you can move on to making something else that was informed by that previous failure. So I guess I'm not afraid of the word failure in the way that the USians are, like the way that mm -hmm. it gets posited by certain quarters in the US. Um, because I have to say, the people in the big, huge corporate capitalist 
companies also don't care about failure. Hmm. They fail all the time. In fact, they, hmm. they teach their folks who are doing very destructive things that failure is encouraged because it means you're taking risks. Right. Fail forward. Fail forward. Fail mm-hmm. big so that mm-hmm. at least you know that you might hit some part of where you're at. Like they're on That's that right. track, That's you know, right. That's and right. but we're like stuck in this sense of the binary. It's like failure or success. And like, That's who, right. who's taught you that? Everything is That's much right. more murky than that. And I think the last thing I'll bring up here around this too, that I think is so important. I remember reading on Facebook, a few years back, something that um, came from, I don't know, somebody was, it might have been Leah Lakshmi, Piepsana Samara Sinha's page. And Leah was talking about the same thing about failure and, you know, what people demand of things. And I thought it was so interesting that somebody, a friend of theirs, mentioned something around the way that transformative justice has really opened up an opportunity for them to be in uh, real community and real mm-hmm. solidarity with survivors in their lives. Like that mm-hmm. regardless of whether the quote other party does anything at all, that they've been able to build community care in new and different ways, that they've been able to listen yes. in yes. new and different ways, that they've been yes. able to do all this other stuff that their friends wouldn't have had before and never had before, actually. Yes. And I just think about that so much on a regular basis about what do we measure as success? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us when we're talking about people and their lives and experiences? Um, I have to find that. I have to find that quote at some point. I'll try to find it yeah. before the end of this Um this uh, conversation just so I can read it because it really just shifted something in Mm. me in just reading how it got laid out. It's something I always have known and I've tried to Mm. embody, but it was Mm -hmm. such a moment of like, just being like, no, this is what we need to be sitting with and just doing something else, which is trying to respond in different ways when harm occurs. That's right. I mean, I think that's the piece I often talk about. I, started getting into healing work or healing justice work because I'd been organized into abolitionist organizing and the mm-hmm. the vision that opened up for me, you know, yeah. it left me with these questions of, okay, if it, it, to make that possible, what do our institutions have to look like? What do our systems have to be? What What needs to be going on kind of internally in order to practice that vision or that kind of future. And that to me, you know, there's not a disconnection for me between what we call healing work and um, abolition, that there's a, there's deep, they're the same in in a lot of places to me in the way that I hold it. What do you think um, of where things seem to be going though, in terms of the conversation about quote healing? and being healed and all that stuff when we talk about it in connection to the big structural eternal struggle Mm -hmm. for more, you know, for liberation that we're engaged in right now. What, what, what are you seeing on the landscape there? I'm interested. 
I love that question. Um, I mean, I think similarly to what you're saying about transformative justice, we're in a moment where a lot of things are up in the air. There are different narratives that lead to different outcomes. There's different practices that lead to different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are um, a significant number. I mean, I think what I feel excited about is understanding, for me, understanding healing as a process, much like transformative justice or abolition, that it's actually a process. To me, it's a process that actually sits at the root of, uh, how do I say it? it it's, it's very similar to what you shared earlier in that I think that trauma is going to happen in a human being's life mm-hmm. because that's just what life is like. You're going to lose somebody you love. Yeah. Something's going to happen catastrophically. Mm-hmm. You will have that experience. But when we have systems designed around care, when we have culture and ritual designed around care and processing what happens in a body or in a, in a group or in a collective, then to me, that's healing censored or care censored. It's, it's attending to the process that is biological, that is communal of uh, our need to process things that are sometimes overwhelming. So to me, the, the question of healing sits very squarely inside a question of culture and inside a question of um, how we transform our systems and the structures that we currently live in. And I don't think that you can pull it out <laughs> or put it to the side. Or um, I think that there are people that are, are skilled in certain modalities and that those folks are necessary inside of a, inside of a purpose, inside of a culture, inside of, um, inside of liberatory work. And mm-hmm. um, I think we always have to know that. And I, I think we're at a moment where it could go a bunch of different ways. That is so real, like that last part, particularly all of it. And the last part, like we're at a moment where it can go a million different ways. I always mm-hmm. tell people, especially my, um, you know, God kids, nibblings and others who mm-hmm. ask me lots of questions about the world and where we are kind of in, in the way that you, in not in the language that you offered at the very beginning, but certainly mm-hmm. their, their concerns about like, you know, they're very concerned about environmental destruction, for example. Yeah. You know, I think about my nephew who's very obsessed with it right now. And I use that term obsessed because that really is what it is for him. Wow. He sees it as this like existential thing about wow. like survival. And yeah. I say to him all the time, I'm like, you know, I don't know how things are going to turn out, but the important thing yeah. for me is that I'm committed to something other than this. I'm committed to yes. something other than the current structure and the state of this society. I don't think that mm-hmm. we have to live the way that we do. I think mm-hmm. that something else is possible. And that's the thing to mm-hmm. be focused on is the, what is the something else that is possible? And so instead of sitting with the existential dread, which I see in him of like, it's all going to shit anyway. Like we're going to not make it. The planet is going to make, first of all, the hubris of that, like the planet can actually throw us off it anytime (laughs) it wants. Like, you know, we are so small. Every day it could happen. It could happen (laughs) every minute and does, right? Like, Like there's this weird human hubris about nature and what 
the planet. It's like, I know, I get it, you know, but you know, the planet is resilient <laughs> and, and not yeah. just resilient, but has much more power over us sometimes than we do over it. And so I yes. think, I think, you know, I think like just sitting with that, like, I always want to, you know, I try to bring him back to this around, like, I'm okay with the small. And I think that mm-hmm. it's okay for you to try to concentrate on the things you have a direct purchase over right now, the things that That's right. you can uniquely do that will lessen and alleviate suffering to the extent that you can. And that that is within your control and that you can do the best you can around that. And I think to me, it connects to this thing that you were talking about, about the not knowing and the the fact Mm -hmm. that healing is a process and it's a process that extends both before and after us. Um, And that like some humility on our part, some sense of understanding ourselves as not these lords of the universe, but rather that we're in deep, deep interconnection with all living and non-living things um, gives you just, I think, maybe a sense of potentiality and Mm -hmm. allows you not to, I think, not to despair um, in a way. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I just... I I think it actually, um, the question of healing too, for me, it, it, it helps support the, that capacity and that capacity to um, remember that you belong. Yes. Because that's one of the things that gets broken when we're overwhelmed. It's like, I can't belong here. Yes. It, it's not possible. So, you know, for me, I'm like, what are the capacities that trauma has tried to take from us or that the trauma of oppression has tried to take? And how do we recover those capacities so that, you know, we have the capacity for connection. We have the capacity for intimacy. We have capacity to see ourselves in those shadow places that you're talking about, not to disown. Yo, sometimes I I get pleasure from this or whatever it might be that you try to disown. I mean, I think part of the reason why we're caught in this, this vying for innocence that I think the carceral state sets up for us, which isn't actually about whether or not what your actions were, yeah. but how can you scramble to innocence? How can you yeah. vie for innocence? That's right. That's it's right. it's it's trying to answer are you good it is are you good enough <laughs> you know it is it is and the and the being the quote being good thing i have just i just rejected years ago yes yes i'm yes. like i am just so uninterested in this and i'm not <laughs> interested in being good i'm interested in mm-hmm. being and that means i'm with all my flaws i'm interested in being that's right and that's what actually allows me to connect with other people. It's that. That's right. Because it's That's a right. constant obsession with, quote, being good is a separating factor for me from other people. Because I'm yes. constantly at the point where I'm going to have to be judging myself against all of them constantly about whether I'm good enough, whether, what, like, no, mm. am, I make, am I taking actions that are good in the mm. sense of, am I doing good things in the world? Am I actualizing those values that I have that are deeply held values that I'm constantly struggling to put into action and to inhabit? Mm. Like that's much more interesting to me 
um, that's right. than the that's kind right. of the, 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 am I a good person? I really, really <laughs> actively reject that. Like it, it actually does something to my system when people, when I hear people say, well, that's a good person. I'm like, I don't really care. Does that make sense? Like, I will say, you know, I'm like, I don't really or care. Or what is that? that? <laughs> what even does that mean? Yeah, and I don't but, care. I care about whether this person is enacting good things right. and whether they're behaving in a way that I would see as useful and non-harming and, you know, healthy and pushing for the well-being of their community, right? Like, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and we let that go. I feel like we we'll see, you know, I'm putting a, a value judgment on it too, but I, it just helps. It has helped me grow, deepen, actually enjoy my life to be like, it's not about good. Yeah. <laughs> Turns really, out. Really that's really true. Yeah. And social media have you tricked out here too, because that's, <sighs> I feel like we're all trying to show a good. Yeah. This is me. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get trapped in that. This is Everybody me. I'm good. Does. Everybody, you does. know, well, the reason why is because it's this concept of the looking glass self, which mm -hmm. was created by this uh, sociologist named Cooley, um, who believed that other people help me see myself. Like I mm -hmm. am myself because other people in part reflect myself back to me. And that's mm -hmm. how I know I'm myself. So in a way mm -hmm. that you are made, you're not, you're not just a, per you are made a person. That's right. You are made a person through how other people view you. And that I think social media is like explodes that and exponentially makes that more so. So that you begin to only see yourself through the reflection, which is, of course, a funhouse mirror. These people don't know you. You know what I mean? Like exactly. they don't know you yeah. and they don't really don't care about you for the most part. Right. Like if yeah. something terrible happens to you, maybe one or two people will think about it again, but most yep. people will just go on with their day. Like no mm -hmm. problem. Maybe there'll be like a tweet or a Facebook post. That's about a you. heart emoji, yeah, but people are going to keep it moving. Right. Like the, this is not the, so I think this is part of what has distorted people's sense of themselves in part, right? But it actually makes total sense if you take that kind of looking glass self theory of how we're made into ourselves through the eyes and the reflection of other people's views of who we are. Um, it makes total sense then. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, Miriam, I mean, some down, <laughs> down, some time down the line, I want to do a part two because I'm like, Okay, how does that relate to how we are made <laughs> through relationship? But let's, I'm yeah. going to pause because I want us to, um, there's so, so, I didn't even get to half my question. <laughs> okay. So many things to This ask is the you, conversation but, we were supposed to have today. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I, I want to just end here with um, maybe your reflections on, I'm going to try to fit two in here in okay. a way, um, but the role of imagination in where we're going but also you know you talk about I'm just going to fit these two together you talk about hope as a discipline and I we had someone on the podcast a a teacher writer his name is Bayo Akamalafe and he talked about the end of hope and mm -hmm. in a way uh, I think pointing to some similar places that you were talking about it's like let's get in the water let's practice mm -hmm. um but the way you talk about hope as a discipline is that it's a practice. So I wonder if you can talk about both 
our imaginations and what that means for this moment. And then also hope is a discipline because I, I hear it in you, Miriam. I, I feel like I hear, I, I, it, it, there's something that I can't quite describe that actually feels very remarkable to me about the way you hold possibility in this work, even though you have been so deep in understanding the real violence and cost yes. of the system as it currently is. So mm-hmm. I would just love to hear your thoughts as, you know, we move towards the end on, on, on both imagination and hope, because I think people listening will hear what I'm talking about in your voice. Yeah, I think, um, yes, I, I've told the story about, you know, being in a space and hearing this person who is a nun kind of in passing in her conversation, mm-hmm. say something mm-hmm. like, you know, say, hope is a discipline. I hope I got that actually correct, but I, I remember it that way. Um, and then kind of moving on, but that, that kind of the, the words together, they just crystallized for me something in that moment that I then held on for years, like decades since. And, um, the thing about it for me, you know, Rebecca Solnit, uh, for people who are interested in like ideas about hope has a really, you know, beautiful short book called Hope in the Dark. Um, And I always tell people to read it. Um, But one of the things she talks about is that hope isn't a actually a substitute for action, but a basis for it. And I really agree Mm -hmm. that that's the case. And I don't have, maybe I have a materialist, a materialist uh, interpretation of hope. Like for me, hope doesn't reside. Hope isn't like a thing. It is also not an emotion. It's not something that I have. It's something that I do. And so I think about it in the context of hope being a discipline for me is that I choose every single day as part of my gratitude practice. I choose to do hope every single day. It's a discipline. It's something I am committed to doing all the time. And um And it's not something for me, it's not like a fluffy thing. And it's also certainly not optimism because optimism makes you think that things will turn out fine. And I don't know if things are gonna turn out fine at all. Like things may not turn out fine. I have actually no idea. But what I'm committed to is the daily practice of trying and the daily practice of doing and the daily practice of struggle. And so this is for me, at least, that's where hope, that's what hope looks like and means for me. Um, and I also think on a kind of very specific level that part of imagination allows you to prefigure things. You know, you don't have to be in the thing in the moment to think about the possibilities of that thing and it in a way is also its Mm -hmm. own way of um kind of allowing you to travel a little bit while being firmly rooted in the place that you are i've always been someone who um since i was a very small person my mother tells me this all the time that like what's the world in which we actually want to live and 
how are we going to make our way towards that mm -hmm. world making has always been something that I've been interested in. I've always, I guess maybe I've always thought of my life as a site for experimentation. And that allows me to not, it's, it's tied to my concept that I mentioned to you before about understanding that failure is just a part of life and mm -hmm. not being worried about it and not being beaten up about it. And also not seeing it like as a personal uh, reflection on my goodness. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> or that mm -hmm. I've been bad because I quote failed. And maybe I also got yeah. that from my father, who was very much of the belief and of the uh, teaching that you should fail often and make tons of mistakes because that's how you can figure out how to improve. And all of us are on a mission of life to be improving constantly. Um, and so because I had those kinds of groundings and foundations, I think all these things make sense. And I, I've read all the, you know, I've read, you know, Dick Hats on Hope, the philosophers mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And, you know, they're, in, they're informative and instructive to me, um, but I've come to my own very specific understanding of what hope means um, within that context. I hope that makes a little bit of sense um, in terms of so what, much. yeah, where, where I'm coming from at it. I did find that quote that I want to read. Um, yeah. That yeah, comes please. from uh, Rebel Sydney Black. And they wrote, I think a lot about my own TJ failure, quote unquote, in quotes, stories, which center the abuser and their willingness or ability to transform and ignores the community care that we pour into survivors as well. What I know is that I prayed with, held while they cried, sat beside, shared mm -hmm. meals with, strategized alongside, and had their back of so many survivors, regardless of what the person harming them decided to do. All I can offer is the willingness to work with someone who's done harm, the willingness not to throw away BIPOC people who are fucking up. And if they don't take that opportunity, if they throw themselves away, that's on them. That's not me failing. It's such big work that I only hope to help along during my lifetime. And I just thought, oh, mm -hmm. what a just a huge exhale in reading those words mm -hmm. and in thinking about them and in inhabiting them because that's been my experience too, um, all along the way. It's also been my experience, obviously, having worked with people who've caused harm to also experience their transformation too. And that also is part of a discipline of getting up every single day and choosing, choosing to remain of the world, in the world, and deeply in the struggle of all of it. That's at bottom, that's what this is all about to me. Wow, Miriam, you sharing that just, um, it touched a bunch of places in me and a bunch of memories too. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. And um, just thank you so much for, thank you so much for sharing your insight, for being in conversation, for being um, someone that is 
getting up and facing these questions and and expanding, helping us to expand what we're able to hold in this moment. I'm I'm really, really grateful and and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Prentice, and for doing this show, which is also hugely important in terms of giving us more ability to have tools and resources and to listen, um, to learn and to grow um, mm -hmm. in our practice and in our attempts to, you know, build this other world that I think we're possible, that we can, that we actually can build. Another world is actually possible. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Assistant editing by Amy Pignon. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at FindingOurWayPod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain the podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way.